This week's episode is brought to you by DreamCloud Mattresses. DreamCloud is an affordable, luxury hybrid mattress that combines the best of latex, memory foam, tufting, and coil technology to provide the best sleep that money can buy, and an exciting combination of comfort and support. And what's particularly great about it is that with a 365-day free trial, that's right, a full year to try it out, you can take your time deciding whether you like it or not. For listeners of the show, DreamCloud is offering 200 bucks off your first order. Head on over to isaacmeyer.net slash dreamcloud, that's one word, dreamcloud, and click the link for the discount. And then once your new bed arrives, have a lie down, enjoy the comfort, and crank up the podcasts. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 268, The Right Thing for the Wrong Reasons. This week I get to cover one of the most bizarre moments in Japanese history, a strange story of World War II that gets at one of the more unusual facets of Japan's relationship with European history and with its Axis allies, the story of what is sometimes called the Fugu Plan, though that name is an anachronism and of the Japanese plan to resettle Jews within the Japanese Empire. This story is interesting for a couple reasons, not the least of which is its seemingly bizarre face. Why would Japan, a wartime ally of Nazi Germany, want to save Jews, who were in the Nazi conception the foremost foe of the German race? But first, let's back up a little bit and talk a bit more about the history of the Jews in Asia more generally. Jews have lived in Asia for a long time. Jewish communities in India, for example, can trace their heritage back to the classical era in some places, and some claim an even longer history. In East Asia specifically, the record gets a bit murkier. For example, there is a small community of Chinese Jews called the Kaifeng Jews, after the city where they lived, who assimilated into mainstream Chinese culture while maintaining some aspects of Jewish tradition or identity after arriving, well, it's complicated, but somewhere around a thousand-ish years ago. Some of the records are less than 100% reliable. Many of those records treat Jews with similar or identical terminology to China's assimilated Muslim population, the Hui. After all, they both won't eat pigs, so close enough. This community faced some persecution. The Mongols, for example, banned both kosher and halal butchering and circumcision among Jews and Muslims in China, but nothing approaching the levels that were seen back in the West. The Kaifeng Jewish community first came to the attention of the West in 1605, when the famous Jesuit missionary Matteo Ricci encountered a Chinese Jew who told Ricci he was a monotheist, and who had mistaken Ricci's image of Mary and Jesus for one of Rebecca and Jacob from the book of Genesis. The man told Ricci that there were many more like him in Kaifeng, and a lay brother sent to investigate reported that yes, this was true, they even had a synagogue, a libaisla, the same term used to refer to a mosque in Chinese. In more recent centuries, Jews arrived in China as part of the various European expeditions there, and eventually European colonial expansion into the region. 
The majority of these Jews were Mizrahi Jews, or Eastern Jews, a catch-all term for Jews from the Middle East and generally anywhere east of Israel. Although some were Ashkenazim, European Jews, particularly from Eastern Europe. Some of these even rose to substantial prominence in Shanghai, such as Elias David Sassoon, an Iraqi Jew from a wealthy merchant family who helped develop his family's merchant empire in Shanghai, as well as Silas Hardoon, also an Iraqi Jew whose rags-to-riches story in Shanghai is a fascinating tale in its own right. However, despite the long history of the Kaifeng Jews and the presence of Jews in international cities like Shanghai, well, these contacts were relatively isolated. Japan, meanwhile, had even less contact with Jews. Small numbers of Jews are reputed to have come over during the so-called Christian century, the period between the arrival of the Portuguese in 1542 and their expulsion, as well as the expulsion of the Spanish, by the early Tokugawa shoguns. Those Jews appear to have left with the expelled Christians. So far as I have been able to determine, there were no Jewish crewmen who were a part of the Dutch missions to Nagasaki during the Tokugawa period, though Dutch history is not my expertise, I could well be wrong. Far better documented is the arrival of Jews in Japan during the lead-up and aftermath of the Meiji Restoration. By the 1860s, communities of Jews were established in Nagasaki and Yokohama, with Japan's first synagogue opening in Yokohama in 1861. In addition to these two cities, other substantive Jewish communities would eventually crop up in the port city of Kobe and in Tokyo itself, many of them populated by Russian Jews who fled the violence and chaos surrounding the collapse of the Tsarist regime in Russia in 1917 and the subsequent brutality of the Russian Civil War. These communities were fairly small. Hard numbers are hard to come by, as the Japanese government generally didn't collect religious information about foreigners. The Nagasaki community started to fade away around the turn of the century. The Kobe one was comprised of about 40 families total at its height, so not exactly big from what we can tell. So in practical terms, what does all of this mean? Well, simply that most Japanese, and really most people living in East Asia, but especially the Japanese, had no real knowledge of Jews or Judaism, didn't really know much about them, and were almost entirely reliant on second-hand or third-hand knowledge about the people and their beliefs. So where did they get that second-hand knowledge? Sometimes from Western history books and other translated texts, but one source more than any other, came to inflect the tone of discourse surrounding the Jews in Japan. From 1918 to 1922, Japanese soldiers were involved in a military intervention against the Bolsheviks in Russia, during which they occupied a good chunk of the Russian Far East. And while they were in Russia, those Japanese soldiers came across copies of a text called The Protocols of the Meetings of the Learned Elders of Zion. If you've never heard of this text, well, that's probably good for you. It's one of the most infamous anti-Semitic fabrications in modern history. The exact origins are somewhat unclear. Even its precise date of creation is open to debate. What we do know is that in the 1800s, Russian anti-Semitism became increasingly overt, culminating in a series of pogroms, violent attacks on Jewish communities sanctioned by the Russian states which took place in the late 1800s and early 1900s. At some point along the way, somebody in Russia forged this document as a way to justify these attacks against Jews. 
Again, the exact authorship is not known. The oldest published partial edition dates to 1903, published in a newspaper in St. Petersburg by a Russian anti-Semite who would go on to lead a series of pogroms himself. The first known full edition dates to two years later as an appendix to a book called The Great in the Small, The Coming of the Antichrist and the Rule of Satan on Earth. So, yeah. Anyway, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion draws from a variety of pre-existing tracts and ideas to describe an elaborate conspiracy theory where Jews plan to rule the world by seizing control of both the governments of the world and the world economy, creating a divinely ordained Jewish world government identified with the coming of the Jewish Messiah. Specifically, the text claims to be the meeting minutes of one of the assemblies of this Jewish conspiracy as the leaders review their plan for global domination to implement this worldwide conspiracy. Each of the protocols of the text, or chapters essentially, describes different facets of the plan. The whole concept of the text taps into older anti-Semitic ideas about Jewish influence, particularly by means of wealth and manipulation of the media, as well as by encouraging racial and religious discord among non-Jews. The Protocols are the origins of one of the modern world's most popular anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, the idea of the international Jewish conspiracy, that Jews are conspiring to rule the world from behind the scenes. This concept remains distressingly popular to this very day. Japanese troops came across the protocols during their Siberian intervention and brought them back to Japan. In particular, they were given copies by some of their white Russian allies, who distributed the work as required reading for soldiers. More than a few white Russians believed that the Jews were responsible for the Russian Revolution, and were convinced that the revolution and the very idea of Bolshevik Marxism was part of the Jewish conspiracy to seize control of the world, an idea that does appear in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And by the way, they believed this despite the fact that the Protocols were proven to be a forgery as early as 1921, and have been consistently reproven to be a forgery over and over and over again ever since. In the absence of any real knowledge of Jews in Japan itself, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion helped define the conversation within the country about who Jews were. Nothing better exemplifies this than the history of the first translator of the Protocols into Japanese. His name was Yasue Norihiro, and he was a member of the army general staff who served in Siberia thanks to the fact that he had training in the Russian language. In 1924, he translated the protocols and published them under the title Sekai Kakume no Rimen, or Behind the World Revolution. This guy, who took the protocols seriously enough to translate them, would go on to be one of the top experts in the Imperial Japanese Army on the Jewish question. The protocols became the proof necessary for some in Japan to point to anything that threatened the current state of the Japanese Empire, from Bolshevism to the growing calls for democracy and expanded suffrage, and say, as so many before and since have also said, the Jews are behind it all. Yet a funny thing happened when this started to unfold. The same people who blamed the Jewish conspiracy for ruling the world also idolized that conspiracy and attempted to connect Japan more directly to the Jews and their influence. Take, for example, one Sakai Katsuisa, a Japanese-born Christian convert who also ran a small publishing firm. 
After his own stint in the army in Siberia, Sakai returned to Japan with plenty of anti-Semitic ideas of his own, publishing a series of books with titles like The Jewish Plot to Conquer the World, The Great Jewish Conspiracy, and Jews and the Reality of the World, published respectively in February, March, and April of 1924, which gives you some idea of the fervor with which he wrote. In his writings, Sakai said, well, the usual stuff, but he also seemed oddly envious of the Jews and the influence and power he thought they had, and in particular, helped advance the fringe theory that the Japanese were descendants of the ancient Israelite Jews. Oddly enough, Sakai started calling himself a Zionist, a supporter of the creation of a Jewish state, and actively spoke in favor of that cause. How did he reconcile these bizarre views? Well, I'll let him tell you in his own words. Quote, Today the world is a battlefield. Japan is under attack by savage external threats and internal confusion. What we should fear most is not cannonballs, but ideological deviation, not battleships, but conspiracy. Like the Jews, I am an advocate of the restoration of divine rule and a Zionist. Nevertheless, I do not wish their conspiracy to succeed anywhere in Japan, or for it to contaminate our imperial land, for I believe that Imperial Japan has no need of their conspiracy, and is in fact in a position to enlighten them. However, since the people of Japan have not yet roused themselves from their infatuation with foreign cultures, the black hand of the Jews' great conspiracy has already begun to invade their thinking. As long as the Jews regard us as their enemy, then so be it. We shall defend our nation against its enemies, lest its future be threatened. I therefore hasten to warn all patriotic Japanese, so long as Japan contents itself with lapping up the leftovers of the West, and views westernization as the be-all and end-all of things, then the Jews will despise our empire and treat it with the same contempt in which they hold the Western monarchies. My urgent duty, therefore, is to alert the people of this country to regard the Jews as their enemy and warn them against falling victim to their schemes. Once we have forced the Jews into retreat, we can teach them the divine origin of the Japanese Empire, and after that we can cooperate with them in perfecting divine rule over all the earth." Unquote. In other words, the Jewish conspiracy is dangerous to Japan because it could result in the destruction of Japan via the ideological weapons used by the Jews to undermine the world. However, if the Jews could be convinced to ally that conspiracy to Japan, if they could be convinced to accept the Japanese as a branch of the Jewish family, and to accept the preeminence of Japan itself, then the international Jewish conspiracy could be turned to Japan's advantage in the creation of a unified Jewish-Japanese conspiracy to rule the world. It's important to emphasize that not all Japanese held these views or believed as Sakai did, but plenty did, and even those who did not often accepted the idea that Jewish influence and power was disproportionate over the whole world. This bizarre mixture of fear of Jews and envy of their quote-unquote power made for some weird outcomes. For example, in the 1930s, many of Japan's leading newspapers were very openly critical of Nazi Germany's policies toward the Jews. After the Nuremberg racial laws were enacted in 1935, the Asahi Shimbun ran two editorials critical of the Nazis, including one with the line, quote, Albert Einstein and Fritz Haber, a German-Jewish chemist, have contributed more to the greatness of Germany than 100 Hitlers, unquote. 
1938, the Japanese government actually announced outright a policy that it would not deport or expel Jews in Japanese territory. These attitudes did start to change to an extent as more and more of the ideological works of Nazism were translated into Japanese and started to build a following. In particular, the Nazi economic program organized by Hjalmar Schacht and its seeming success in rebuilding Germany's economy were the subject of some envy in Japan, and those seeming successes, it's complicated, we don't have room to get into it, lent some credibility in the eyes of many Japanese to the other views espoused by the Nazis. Mein Kampf, Hitler's autobiography slash manifesto, was first translated into Japanese in 1937, followed by a series of other Nazi ideological works. These works, with their intense hatred of the Jews, started to build their own following. By the time of the Pacific War, there was an undercurrent of Japanese propagandists who accepted the basic tenet of Nazi ideology that behind the Allied coalition opposing them was a global cabal of Judaism, and that Japan, Germany, and Italy were engaged in a single collective struggle against the Jewish foe. At the same time, this anti-Semitism lacked the deep historical roots of its European counterpart, and there was this sense that the Jewish conspiracy could be a useful ally to the Japanese, who were, after all, allies of convenience with Germany, far more than convicted supporters of the Nazi cause. And so it was that some among Japan's government came to the obvious conclusion. It was time to recruit Europe's Jewish population, increasingly dislocated by the Nazis, to Japan's cause. Doing so would mean turning the power of the Jewish conspiracy to Japan's own ends, and as a bonus, securing a better relationship with Jewish-dominated states like the United States on the assumption that Jews saved by Japan would pass on the word to their American brethren by means of the conspiracy grapevine that, hey, these Japanese are alright. The plan, of course, was a mess, not the least of all because it was fundamentally predicated on an imaginary conspiracy that did not and never has existed. It also lacked, well, a plan. Really, what transpired were a series of ad hoc policy decisions to promote Jewish settlement in the Japanese Empire. Advocates of this settlement pointed to men like Jakob Schiff, an American Jewish financier who had given interest-free loans of millions of dollars to Japan to finance its war against Russia in 1904-1905 as retaliation for Russia's treatment of its own Jews. If one Jew like Schiff was willing and able to do this to get revenge on the enemies of the Jewish people, they said, what could the whole Jewish conspiracy accomplish? As early as the early 1930s, this reasoning was convincing enough to some in the Japanese army that they began to encourage a process of Jewish settlement in Manchuria. Two officers of the Kwantung army, responsible for helping to create Manchukuo, the independent Manchu state that was in fact a Japanese puppet state, took the lead in this process, Captain Inuzuka Koreshige and Captain Yasue Norihiro, aka the same guy who first translated the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, into Japanese. In their corner, they also had a group of businessmen who subscribed to their view of the Jewish question, the most prominent of whom was Aikawa Yoshisuke, a businessman and founder of a little company you may have heard of called Nissan, though for some reason they don't like to advertise this part of his career too much. Inasmuch as there was a concrete plan, the plan was to encourage Jewish refugees to settle in the city of Harbin, which already had an existing Jewish community, 
not a huge one, but a settled one, created in the wake of the Russian Civil War, when Russian Jews with white or at least anti-red proclivities fled the area. This plan never really made much headway, chiefly because the Japanese army in Manchuria had another contradictory goal in terms of managing its Manchurian holdings, building an alliance with white Russian refugees who lived in Manchuria, who were viciously anti-communist thanks to the Russian Civil War, which, from the Japanese perspective, was a pro, but also extremely anti-Semitic, blaming Jews for the communist revolution, and therefore not super down with the whole Help the Jews plan. In particular, the 1933 kidnapping of the French-Russian Jew Simon Caspi, son of a wealthy local hotel owner, really brought these tensions into focus. Caspi was kidnapped while out on a date with his girlfriend and held for ransom. Caspi the Elder was advised not to pay, and after a month-long standoff, the younger was killed. A Japanese investigation located the murderers, local criminals in the pay of a crime boss, named Konstantin Rodzaevsky. Rodzaevsky defended his men by saying that they were merely engaged in a bit of anti-communist action, despite, you know, the whole kidnap and ransom bit. That defense apparently clicked for the Japanese because the sentences resulting from the trial were mere slaps on the wrist, and the defendants were quickly pardoned and released. In the wake of this incident and the profoundly half-assed response, apparently all you need to do to get away with killing Jews is say you are doing it because you hate communism, over 70% of Harbin's Jews left the city feeling that the white Russian presence made them unsafe. A Jewish community did continue to exist in Manchuria, though. In addition to the remnants of the Harbin community, a decent-sized one in Mukden existed as well, some 250 families. In total, about 13,000 Jews were left in Manchukuo at the end of the war. Many of the ones who did not stay relocated to the city of Shanghai, and especially to Shanghai's Japanese concession. You might remember that the city of Shanghai was the major hub of international trade with China. Each of the major foreign powers had its own section of the city to house its presence there. These areas were in large part bastions of imperial power. Chinese law did not apply there, and instead the area was governed by the French or the British or the Japanese, or whoever else had managed to grab a few blocks of real estate in Shanghai for themselves. By virtue of that unique political status, the foreign concession also became a hotbed of activist sentiment. Anyone who wanted to escape the prying eyes of the Chinese government, or any government other than the one that ran that concession, could just hop into the neighborhood. That's why, for example, when the Chinese Communist Party was founded in Shanghai, it was founded in the French concession. Japan had a large, though technically unofficial, concession in the Hong Kong neighborhood of Shanghai, and more importantly, they were willing to take people into that territory without passports or visas, which, for Jews having a harder and harder time getting those kind of documents from their governments, was a real boon. The result was an exploding Jewish community in Shanghai, some 23,000 Jews living in the city by the 1940s, many of them fleeing Germany after Kristallnacht, the first open state-sponsored attack on Jews in Germany, or from Poland and the Baltic states in 1939 and 1940, as the area's Jews were pressed on both sides by expanding German and Soviet power. They joined a small existing Jewish community composed of Iraqi Jews who had moved to the city for business reasons, but often lived in the British concession instead of the Japanese one, 
as well as Russian Jews who fled Russia and later Harbin to escape anti-Semitic persecution. The decision to take all of these Jews into Shanghai was the brainchild of those same two men, Inuzka Koreshige and Yasui Norihiro, for the same reason they supported Jewish settlement in Manchuria. The two men also pushed for the opening of Kolbe, with its existing Jewish population, to Jewish refugees, though that plan did not last terribly long, thanks to worries about the refugees, who were predominantly Russian or Eastern European Jews, and thus viewed as potential spies targeting Kobe's military shipyard. For the Jews living in Shanghai, the resulting living conditions were not great. The population was crowded into very tight quarters, and supplies were pretty tight. The Japanese government provided no real assistance beyond just letting the refugees in, perhaps out of the assumption that nobody who was in on the Jewish conspiracy would ever lack for the wealth to take care of themselves, or because the plan was really the brainchild of these two men and didn't really enjoy official government sanction or support from Tokyo. Instead, the work of supporting these refugees fell on outside groups, most notably one of the world's most successful Jewish communities, that of the United States. This aid naturally slowed to a trickle and then vanished altogether with the outbreak of war between Japan and the U.S., which also resulted in the detainment of many of the wealthiest Jews in the city, the Iraqi ones who were often British nationals, and thus enemy aliens in the eyes of the Japanese government. Still, despite this lack of support, the quote-unquote Shanghai Ghetto, as the area came to be called, and the Jews under Japanese rule more generally, were protected from the worst crimes of the Nazis. Despite constant German pressure to liquidate the Shanghai Ghetto and implement the final solution, which is to say, kill all the Jews, Japanese officials resisted. Even the dispatch of SS officers to encourage the Japanese failed to change their minds in their refusal to execute the Jews. The most the Germans managed to convince the Japanese to do was to move the Jews into a specific neighborhood to create a de jure ghetto, though the de facto lack of walls or checkpoints meant that it didn't really resemble at all the ghetto system into which Jews were locked in Europe. Ultimately, the Japanese saved some 24,000 Jews from the Holocaust via the Shanghai Ghetto, who otherwise would have been consumed by it, though that number pales relative to the hundreds of thousands taken in in other places. It is still, though, 24,000 people who otherwise may not have gotten away alive. Most of these Jews left China after the war. The vast majority moved to Israel, though some came to the United States. Among the people saved by this plan were many from the areas most devastated by the Holocaust. For example, some of the only yeshivas, schools of Orthodox Jewish learning to escape destruction by the Nazis in Eastern Europe, were able to do so because they moved to Shanghai. Of course, from the Japanese perspective, the plan was technically a failure. The international Jewish conspiracy could not be turned to Japan's advantage because, of course, it does not exist, and in less conspiratorial terms, it turns out Jews don't actually agree on everything, or really anything, by the way. America's Jewish community, for example, did not become less hostile to Japan because of Japan's protection of some Jews. Indeed, some of America's leading Jews, like Stephen Samuel Wise, one of the leaders of America's massive reform Jewish movement, openly condemned the idea of Jewish-Japanese cooperation because of Japan's relationship with the Nazis, as well as its behavior in China. Indeed, this story was relatively unknown outside of Israel until the late 20th century, 
when two Americans, Marvin Tokayer and Mary Schwartz, wrote a book about it. They're the ones who coined that term I used at the beginning of the show, the Fugu Plan, named for the poisonous Japanese blowfish that some people eat as a delicacy. Not quite sure why they picked the name, to be honest. While the book is interesting, I have not read it, because it's not based on archival work in Japanese, and later reviewers have pointed out some issues in terms of the translation the writers were working with to make it. Anyway, what was the point of taking all this time to talk about this weird little episode, other than the fact that it is so very weird and interesting because of its weirdness? Well, I personally find this story fascinating primarily because of what it says about Japan's relationship with its wartime history. It has become fashionable for some among the Japanese right, for example, to point to the Shanghai Ghetto, or to the story of the Japanese consul Sugihara Chiyune, who saved so many Jews in Lithuania, as we talked about very early in this show's history, and to use these moments to refute accusations that Japan's behavior in World War II was criminal in the same way that Germany's was. If, they say, Germany's great crime was its treatment of the Jews, then hey, look at how Japan treated its Jews. Not at all the same. This is, of course, fantastically disingenuous. The rationales advanced for saving the Jews were grounded only partially, if at all, in humanitarianism, and even if that weren't the case, saving some people does not excuse doing awful things to other people. It is also worth noting that the bizarre cocktail of anti-Semitic undercurrents, combined with a degree of support for Judaism and, to a certain extent, Zionism, actually endures in Japan today. On the one hand, Japan was one of the first countries in Asia to recognize Israel as a state way back in 1952, as soon as Japan got control of its own diplomacy back from the U.S. occupation. Today, Japan and Israel have strong economic ties, and Japan has a small but very secure Jewish expat community. On the other hand, anti-Semitic tropes from the Protocols of the Elders of Zion still have their believers in Japan as well. In 1995, the terrorist group Aum Shinrikyo released their manifesto. They claimed to be striking against a global conspiracy led by the U.S., but masterminded by who else? The Jews. More recently, LDP minister, former prime minister, and walking embarrassment to the Japanese government, Mr. Aso Taro, came under massive public attack for actually saying out loud, quote, Hitler, who killed millions of people, came to no good even if his motive was right." Unquote. In 1995, the prominent literary magazine Marco Polo published a headline in which it denied that Germany gassed Jews during the Holocaust, creating a firestorm of condemnation that eventually resulted in the magazine being shuttered. However, the owners of the magazine, the literary conglomerate Bunge Shunju, never apologized. When asked whether he believed the gas chambers were real, the president of the organization equivocated and said he lacked the expertise to answer that question. In 2009, a prominent political commentator, Tahara Shoichi, told Tanaka Makiko, daughter of the insanely corrupt LDP politician Tanaka Kakue, that her father had been, quote, done in by the Jews, unquote, which is ridiculous. Tanaka Kakue was more than capable of doing himself in, thank you very much. A phone survey by the Anti-Defamation League in 2016 found that 23% of Japanese harbored attitudes the ADL classifies as anti-Semitic, compared to 9% in the United States. Now, it is worth noting that this is an undercurrent, not the majority of Japanese. 
most people in Japan do not hold these views. But some do, and particularly as Japan's economic and social anxieties grow in relation to ongoing economic stagnation, the declining population, and other issues, there is a chance that the base for such ideas could expand. Where that could take us, only time will tell. In the meantime, we are left with the unusual convergence of the histories of two very different peoples, and the story that has grown out of it. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Robert Meyer and Louise Pender for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we cover one of Japan's least known but most fascinating peasant uprisings, the Chichibu Incident.